Great to, great to open God's Word. If you have your Bible with you, uh, turn to John chapter 3. We are in John chapter 3, and I'm the nice man who's now going to bring you John chapter 3. I must be a nice man because uh, I have a friend who lives in Australia, and uh, he is a doctor. He and his wife came to New Zealand about a year and a half ago and wanted to take Sarah and I out for lunch. So we, we went a little early to the Mojo down on the waterfront, and we grabbed a cup of coffee, and then they turned up. And as they turned up and they sat down, uh, my friend said, now, before we go any further, you need to know I am paying. I sort of looked at him with that, oh, no, you're not, but ordered lots anyway. <laughs> and then we, we chatted and we lost our sense of time and we drank more coffee and more water. And, and after an extended period of time in this conversation, I realized that I needed to go to the bathroom. And so I just started to get out of my seat and walk around. And as I did that, he grabbed my arm and he said, no, you don't. I said, oh, yes, I do. (laughs) He said, no, you will not do that. I said, you're a doctor. You know what will happen if I don't do that. He said, you're not doing it. I'm doing it for you. I thought, that's impossible. And I realized that we were talking on two different levels. This passage we look at today clarifies what we're talking about as followers of Jesus Christ. This passage today defines what it means to become a total follower of Jesus Christ. And it starts with introducing us to Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 1 says, There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were performing, you were doing, if God were not with him. Some people will say that Nicodemus was obviously afraid, that's why he went to Jesus at night. I I think different. I think he was wanting to understand. And so he came to Jesus in the quiet of the night when the crowds were not there and there was opportunity he had to be able to ask him the questions he wanted to ask him. And Nicodemus's question was to Jesus, you know, you, you're showing signs of being a king who will bring in the kingdom of God. And God must be with you, he says, because we can see evidence of those signs. We can see evidence of your authority. You, are, you have authority over the demonic, 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 authority over the, yeah. You have control over nature. You have control and the ability and the authority to forgive sin and to heal the sick and to raise the dead. The question and behind the question is, are you the coming king? Are you the one who is coming in all power and all authority? You see, there is this theme that runs throughout the Bible, which is the kingdom of God is coming. And as you and I would know, a kingdom is a place where people, where there is a rule. There is someone who rules, there is someone who has authority, and we are subject to that authority. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we recognize that he has authority over our lives, but we also recognize that it is not full authority in the world. In fact, there is a brilliant verse 
There is a promise in Revelation chapter 11 where it says this, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That theme, that anthem, is declared in eternity, present, future. It's declared around the throne of Jesus. It's declared in this time where the kingdom of the world, which is what we now live in, which is opposed to the ways of God, which is anti-God, A day is coming when Jesus Christ and all of his power and all his authority will come and all things will be put under his feet and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Savior and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. And Nicodemus is saying, is that now? Is that now? And Jesus gives this brilliant, clarifying Statement, verse 3, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one can perceive, no one can experience, no one can understand, no one can partake, no one can be in the kingdom of God. No one can be under the rule of God unless they're born again. He clarifies this. There are so many different options that people want to believe about how I might be someone who is a follower of Christ, about how my eternity might be secured, about how I can live life, about how I can do life. And Jesus comes to this moment. He says, let's be very, very clear once and for all. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So what does being born again mean? Well, Jesus goes through, and he, for the rest of this passage, he gives us some pictures of the essentials of salvation, of what it means to be born again. Starting verse 4, Nicodemus asks, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. And Jesus said, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. You kind of get the feel that he's wanting us to know we need to be born again. Born of the water and Spirit, as would be of no surprise to you, when it talks like that, theologians have argued and debated ad nauseum as to what it means by water and what it means by Spirit. And some people will say, well, water is natural birth. So it's saying you must be born first before you can be born again. And they talk about natural birth and spiritual birth. Some people say, well, it's like you've got two parents to be born physically and you need two parents to be born spiritually. So you're born from a father and a mother and you're born from water and the spirit. One thing we do know is that whenever you talk of water and the word, it does talk about the word. We know this if we go to Ephesians chapter 5. It says that Jesus made her, that is the church, holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Water cleans and water prepares. I grew up in Nelson and grew up on a farm. And on that farm, uh, we had lots of um, farm lanes, which were fantastic as a young guy riding a bike. And I and some of my friends used to get our bikes out and we would go riding fast up and down these farm lanes and having a lot of fun and trying to push each other off. And inevitably, you would come off your bike. 
And that would be not too bad, except if you come off your bike on a gravel lane with all sorts of animal produce on it, you tend to find that you make a real mess of yourself. And I have these very distinct memories of, a, of sitting in a hot Nelson sun on our concrete porch out the front of our home with my very messy leg stretched out in front of my mother. And that moment where you would limp home and you would say to your mother, you would say, Mum, I think you might need to have a look at this one. And so she would stretch it out and have a look at it, and there on my knee, I've got the scars to prove it, not that I'm going to show you, but uh, you would see you'd, there'd be the blood trickling down the side of the kneecap, and there'd be flaps of skin, and underneath the skin there might be a few pieces of stone, and then some dirt, and then some other animal produce, and it would all be sitting there inside my knee. So what my mother would do is she would get a warm basin of water and add a bit of Dettol into it and she would begin to dab it to clean it out. And I would hate it because it would hurt. But I also knew that if she didn't clean it out and just put the bandage around it, it would get infected and it would get worse. Water cleans. The word cleans. The word comes into our life and begins to describe who we are. Have you encountered that? Have you encountered reading God's word and and all of a sudden you've realized, well, I'm not as good as what I thought I was. Or you read it and you, you look at it and say, you know, some of those things that I'm doing, the word seems to be telling me that that's actually not a good way to live. And you think, well, I thought this Christian journey was about, you know, being positive and lifting me up and and building me up. And well, it is, but firstly, it's got to clean out the rubbish. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And the first part of that is to realize that there is sin in your life. There's stuff that needs to be pointed out. And the Bible goes on and says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and the enduring word of God. Verse 4, born into a living hope, an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. Yeah, we've just, um, just farewelled Rach Curry and just see her over here. She's... Uh, expecting their first child, Rachel and Mike, which is just such a thrill. and Can't wait to see that little baby. Imagine, imagine Rachel, waiting outside the delivery room. There was a whole bunch of policemen, and they had a warrant for your baby's arrest. And as soon as you delivered that baby, they burst into the room and they slapped handcuffs on it and took it away and charged it with a whole lot of misdemeanors. Now you look at me they're going, that would never happen. Because the baby's been born and it hasn't had a chance to mess up yet. When you're born again, you have in the eyes of God no past only a future. Do you know that? When you are born again, you have in God's eyes no past. You only have a future. Are you someone who has come to faith in Jesus and you've spent your entire life desperately trying to make amends for what you did? God doesn't see it. The Bible tells us you're born again. You start fresh. 
Jesus paints another picture. He paints this picture of the work of the Spirit with the wind, starting verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sounds, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Well, Nicodemus is scratching his head on this, and I don't blame him. He says, how can this be? You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. Then how will you believe if I speak of heavenly ones? The wind. The wind speaks of the... The, the spirit, and just like the wind, you can't see the wind. Nobody's ever seen wind, but we sure see the effect of wind. We feel the effect of wind. And here's what Jesus is getting to, and he, he refers in part to an idea which we see in Ezekiel chapter 37. And Ezekiel 37, this isn't back in the Old Testament, there was a prophet, a man called Ezekiel, and God one day told him to go for a wander. And he went for a wander into a valley. And in that valley, there was a whole lot of dry bones. And as he wandered around through the dust, he looked at these bones and he thought, man, they are dry bones. And he said, they're dead. There's no life. There's nothing there. And there was this moment where Ezekiel was asked by the Lord, can these bones be brought back to life? And Ezekiel looks at the Lord and he says, well, sovereign Lord, and therein was the answer. If you want them to be, they can be. It's a great example of uh, the challenges we face when it comes to outreach, isn't it? Yeah, we're invited to walk into the valley of life, and in that valley there are people who you and I love dearly, who are dead in their sin, and who, for all intents and purposes, are like a valley of dry bones. And we look at people we love dearly and we look at people we wish would come to faith and knowledge in Jesus Christ. And we see as much life in a dead bone as we do in them. We wonder, God, is that possible? And the answer is in those words, Sovereign Lord, with you all things are possible. And Ezekiel was commanded by God to speak to prophesy to these bones. And in verse 4 of Ezekiel 37, here is what the Lord said to him, prophesy to these bones and say, by dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So I, that was Ezekiel, prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. You know, if there was ever a story in the Bible I wish I could see in real life, wouldn't it be that one? But they're still not alive. This word, this prophesied word, what is that? When you prophesy, you declare God's word. And here is what was happening. God's word was being declared to these bones, and they were being knitted together, and all of a sudden there was, a, there was life there, but there wasn't life. And it's true, isn't it? You can live under the power of God's word. You can live doing a good life. You can live doing a good church life. You can come to church. You can do the activities of church. You can do all those things but not know Jesus Christ and not be born again. There's something missing. 
And so Ezekiel keeps on going. And in verse 9, it says, The Lord said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they might live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life, and they stood on their feet, a mighty army. And Ezekiel there was given a prophetic vision, a word of how God would reinstate the children of Israel, but there is an application to us in terms of our life. Truth begins to put flesh on our faith, but it's the work of the Spirit that brings it to life. And we know that because John chapter 16 tells us the work of the Spirit, the work of the wind. See, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people not believe in me. You know, so often when we talk about sin, people think, well, sin is this big list. You know, I've got all these things that I've done wrong. I've, I've, you know, I've done this wrong, I've done that wrong, I've done the other thing. And there's so many things that we put on there. And, and Jesus just simply sums it up like this. said, sin is not believing in me. Sin is turning away from me. It actually makes it far simpler, doesn't it? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? If not, you're sinning. So, well, that's a bit harsh. Well, I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father. If there is a holy God and a righteous God, and that means that if we are sinners, that we are separate from Him, it means there must be a way to get to a righteous, holy God. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He took on our sin, and He went back to the Father. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Remember that first verse in Revelation, the kingdom of this world? Well, the prince of the world is a name. His name is Satan. And he has rejected God and he he is destined for an eternal hell. And his desire is to drag as many people as he possibly can along with him. And he will do it through deceiving people. He will do it through entrapping people. He will do it by doing anything and everything he possibly can to keep people like you and me from hearing the message of Jesus Christ that we need to be born again. And Jesus in this verse says, the work of the Holy Spirit is to take the truth of the word about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment and open the door of your heart to say you need to know. There was a family who met me probably two years ago. They live in America and their their son had come to New Zealand and had walked away from them and had walked away from faith. and They came out to see him, to try and find him. Their hearts were broken, their they were heavy with that sense of loss. And, and as they chatted with Sarah and I, and we were just having conversation, and we said we'd pray for them, they, you could see the pleading in their, their eyes. Yeah. Would it be that somebody who loves Jesus in Wellington would meet our son and would show him the love and the care that might bring him back to Christ? And it strikes me that what we do is we we live out Ezekiel 37. Do you realize there are people who are dry bones 
in your life. There are people who are dry bones in your place of work, in your place of study, in your neighborhood, in your families, in your friend groups. There are people who do not yet know Christ, and the Lord is saying, would you prophesy? In other words, would you declare my word to them? Now, how do you do that? You don't you know, take the Bible and stand at the end of their driveway and start from Genesis 1-1 and start reading it loudly and hope that they hear you, know, you, don't, you don't make it an ambition to every time you're talking with someone to drop in at least two Bible verses. But we declare, we, we declare the word of God through firstly who we are, through secondly what we do, and thirdly through what we say. And all three line up and there is integrity. And as we do that, and we have opportunity through asking questions or through telling our story or through telling a Bible verse, if that is appropriate, we sow the word of God into their life. But we recognize it's not just about the word of God, it's about the spirit of God. And the spirit of God is the breath of God who brings that inner conviction of sin, of righteousness and judgment and it explodes together in this moment where someone all of a sudden says, God, I believe. And they're born again. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus paints the third and final picture. Verse 13 says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus took Nicodemus back to another Old Testament story. It's found in Numbers chapter 21, and it's where the children of Israel were wandering around in the desert. And as they were wandering around, they did what the children of Israel did really, really well. They complained. And Numbers 21 starts off in verse uh, 5. It says this, The people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water. See, they had depended on the provision of God, both for God's leading and for God's uh, for eating and for water. And every time they were thirsty, God provided. Every time they were hungry, God provided. And God was providing every day this manna from heaven, the stuff which would come down and would land on the ground, and they'd pick it up and they'd cook it and they'd eat it. And now they were saying to the Lord, we detest this miserable food. I wonder if we sometimes do that a bit. We have all that God has given us. And we say, oh, but I want more. We have this wonderful provision of God in terms of our life. Oh, yeah, but I want to try life without you. The lie of the enemy is that God is a cosmic killjoy and we're better off without him. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. And they bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord will take the snakes away from us. You know, the answer was not to take the snakes away, but for the people to turn from their sin. Because ultimately it was their sin and not the snakes that was killing them. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. The snake's bitten, the poison killed, the sin was deadly. 
Moses interceded for the people. And God told him to put that snake on a pole and all the people needed to do was to look and then live. To recognize it was the snake bite that was killing them. And yes, it could really be that simple. You could imagine a person getting bitten and their friend coming along. And this person is is in agony as they begin to feel the poison coursing through their body. And the person says, look, all you need to do is go look at that snake on a pole. Well, why should I do that? Because God promised that if you do, you will live. Could you imagine the person turning to them and saying, well, why should I trust God? Yeah, if he really loved me, he wouldn't have sent a snake. Maybe they would have said, it hurts too much. I'll do it when I feel better. Or maybe they'd ask the question, they'd say, well, how do I know that what you're saying is actually true? I mean, I'm hurting. How do I know if I look over there, it'll fix me? Or maybe they turn around and they say, yeah, but I, I need to do something. You can't tell me that I can just look over there and I'll be healed. I wonder if some people would look at a friend and say, yeah, I know I probably, probably need to look over there, but I've got too much to do at the moment. Just let me finish this stuff and then I'll have a look. Somebody would probably turn around and say, yeah, that snake was so yesterday. We've got this new book. It's like really insightful and it tells me all about how good I am and I'm sure if I read this, that'll help me and I won't need to look at the snake. Hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ hung on a pole. And he hung on that pole, and as he did so, just like Moses, he interceded. And as he was on that pole, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And as he hung on that pole outside of a city, there were two thieves, one on either side of him. One decided he wouldn't look. One decided that, that all this Jesus needed was ridicule like everybody else was doing. So he would continue to look the other way and he would die in his sin. But the other one realized that there was something profoundly different about Jesus Christ. And he turned and he looked and he lived, even though he died. He looked and recognized that it was sin that was killing him. And he repented and he turned toward Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. You won't see the rule of God in your life. God made him, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took his one and only son whom he loved and he put him on that cross. And on that cross he poured the entirety of God's righteous judgment against the sin of all humanity. And in that moment he became sin for us so that as he took our sin we can take his righteousness. And so when the Holy Spirit convicts you with regard to sin, the fact you don't believe in him, and he regards, he convicts you with regard to righteousness, what he's saying is this. Yes, sin is the bad news. Righteousness is the good news. That you have this gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. 
And in the Old Testament, if you just say, you know, maybe Jesus was God's plan B. Right from the Old Testament, this has always been the truth. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Can it really be that simple? Yes, it can. Unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Here's how John summed it up in verse 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Question, do you believe in him? Have you come to a moment, a point in your life where you have turned to him and said, yes, I believe. The first and most important response that we must have this morning is to give you opportunity to do that. You may have been in church most of your life. You may have just started coming. You may have discovered that there are great things around being in a community like this. There's kind of good things rub off. Life might start to get a little bit more in order. There might be a sense of purpose and joy. But the question is this, all of those things are peripheral. Have you been born again? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? If your answer to that is no or don't know or, oh, I don't know, maybe somehow, can I encourage you? in this moment, to pray and to ask Jesus Christ into your life, to surrender your life to him. And I say, how do I do that? Well, I'm going to invite us all to bow our heads right now. And if you're a follower of Jesus, would you pray? And pray that God would use, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, would take this moment to convict with regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, let me lend you some words that you can use to express what is going on in your life right now. You may want to pray these words. Lord Jesus, I thank you you love me. I thank you you became sin for me. I thank you you offer me the gift of life and of righteousness. Lord Jesus, I turn from living a life not believing you to believe in you. I repent of my old way of living and I choose to live for you. Thank you for forgiving me and giving me the gift of life. Lord Jesus, I surrender to you now. In your name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?